Jesus' name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. All right, as we bring up the house lights, uh, as I always encourage, there's note-taking paper back there. There's pens, there's Bibles, there's everything you need to be hopefully successful. I'll try to give you guys what you need. All right. And if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, or chapter, yeah, no, chapter 6. I jumped way back. So two chapters over, Hebrews chapter 6. Um, this series has been a gift, and I think it's been a lot of fun to jump into right after we kind of covered the seven churches and the reality of what the Lord had for us in those verses and those chapters. And so um, as we dive in, this is something I kind of hit on with people uh, who came a little earlier, help us set up, help us get things going. But if you've never had this moment, but I think a lot of us who are either in college or you're in school and you have an opportunity to talk with friends and stuff, one of the things that you always talk about the most is usually about what you're learning in the current moment, right? So like to you, it's fresh on your mind. It's what you're wanting to do. And so over the past few months, um, we've been having a lot of conversations and I've been able to have the joy of just talking through people's thoughts and their reality is about salvation, right? And about the power of it, about who holds it, about their doubts. And so I started doing research and, and for a long time, I've been wanting to hit this and, and really, be, really be prevalent with you guys and be upfront and honest with the truth of the word in this. And, and as I started studying to statistics, Lifeway Research actually does a phenomenal job with their research. And so um, they do a really amazing uh, studies and they do a lot of work into it. And so come to find out, uh, comprehending the reality either for or against, and you'll see where I land and where we as a church land and where scripture lands on this, but as a reality of talking about eternal security and who holds our salvation, it is either a great joy or struggling through it to the point where there has actually been statistics. Enough of this has happened to where there's statistics of people who have taken their own lives because of the fear that they have of whether or not they're truly his. And so it can either be an extreme joy or it can be somewhere in the middle and you really don't care or it can be at the other end where you end up either taking your life or living very depressed. And so for months I've been having these conversations with people and we've been diving in and kind of talking and seeing their different perspectives and it was one of those things where you never want to force just something you think is prevalent into a massive talk because it might not be what the Lord has for you. And so finally tonight as I was studying in one of my last conversations about this, someone brought up this passage and I was like, man, let's, let's study through it together, like let's walk through it together and then I sat down this week to start working on tonight's message and I was like, oh, there it goes. Uh, we're in Hebrews 6. And so what a prevalent way the Lord ordained for us to talk about it. And so I want to take a poll in here. I like getting crowd participation. So how many of us have ever questioned if you will make it a believer to the end of your life? How many of you guys are like, man, am I going to stand firm? Am I going to make it all the way through? Have you ever had a single doubt in that? It's fair. How many of you have ever thought that you might sin your way out of the love of God? That's a, that's a normal thought. How many of you now are all tense because we're hitting on a subject we honestly want to avoid? That, that's fair. That's extremely fair. And that's what we're here for. Right? We're here to hit all the aspects of God's word, not just the stuff that makes us comfortable. Like we want John 3, 16, but we also want 17 and 18 with it, right? Like we want the part that talks about the world's already condemned and Christ is saving us from that condemnation, Right? We all love the comfort of 16 where it says God loved the world in this way and we see the beauty of it, right? Because it makes everyone feel so loved. And then you're like, wait, he's calling us all sinners, right? We don't like the uncomfortability in it. And that's, that's what we need. That's why we're doing an event like we're doing on April 29th with our apologetics panel. That's why we're doing these things because it makes no benefit to any of you to go live the lives that you're living, working the jobs that you're doing, going to the schools that you're doing, and, and all these things if at the end of the day, you can't stand firm on what you believe. And that's why we're doing it with our youth. We're going through, that, we're going through a whole orthodoxy and just talking about terms and reality of what it means to be a Christian and the words that we use, like justification and sanctification. Tristan is actually preaching this Wednesday on um, authenticity as a believer. And so it's just, it's so many cool things happening, but it starts with going to the foundations. 
And so I want to cover this doctrine tonight. I want to cover this topic, and I want to flesh this out with us because I know already just from some of the reactions that there's people on both sides of the coin in this room. And that's okay, but we can't just avoid the conversation because we think the friction or the tension is going to be too uncomfortable. We have to walk through it. And so as always, I want to give you guys two opening quotes, and they are on the paper. I always try to put them on the papers that you guys have. I try to put them in the emails, but this one's from uh, John Stock, who actually was a colleague of Charles Spurgeon, and uh, he actually wrote a lot of curriculum with him and, and talked through things in life. But he wrote this. He said, the work of the Spirit in the souls of the saints, so the souls of you know, the people who are saved, is invariably carried out to perfection. A true work of grace in the soul now is a privilege to the glory hereafter. He will grace and glory. Uh, he will give grace and glory, Psalms 84 and 11. After you believe, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased pr- uh, possession unto the pr- uh, praise of his glory, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. See, and he finishes off, and he says, present grace is the earnest mercy of a future heaven. And I don't know if many of you have had tried to purchase a home. I don't know if this is a thing they do with apartments either. But when, normally when you go, you have to kind of give some earnest payment, right? It's like a good faith payment, right? And so it's this like, we have the money, we can afford it. Like we're not just scamming you all and then we're not gonna be able to buy the house type thing. We've now done it twice and it's scary. Um, thankfully, hopefully this is the last time we have to move. Um, <laughs> but... He's saying this present grace, the grace that you experience at salvation and the grace that you are given every single day is this earnest payment, right? It's this reality that by every time God is is dispensing that grace to you, it's showing you that he's going to pay in full like Christ did. Christ paid it on the cross and he's saying every day you walk in grace is that one day you're closer to coming home, right? It's that earnest payment of a future home. Wayne Grudem, who writes a lot of books, and he wrote a really good uh, book on systematic theology, he wrote this, The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power, and they will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. It's It's that double flip for you, right? Because we see it in Scripture. We see that Paul says it, right? Work out your faith in fear and trembling, Right, Work out your salvation. We see all these things, and then yet we see over and over again, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our salvation. Right? We see that in Ephesians, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, Greek or Roman. It's, it's this one body of Christ. It's his body that he is going to take care of, and he is going to bring home. And so, yes, we march into it. See, there's actually much discussion about this topic, and a lot of people believe that we can lose our salvation. And so, If you can't tell already, I'm not on that side of the coin, nor is our church, nor is any of our pastors, nor is where we see a lot of what I truly will tell you and from the passage tonight that Scripture does not claim that truth. And I know that might sound arrogant or even harsh, and I pray that it doesn't come across that way. I pray that it comes across lovingly. I pray that it comes across encouragingly um, to you that there is such a gift to know that the one who saved you holds you. And so... This passage just so happens to be one of the ones that when we think of the other side, we go directly here. And so to bring this all into where we're going to be tonight in chapter 6, we have to remind ourselves of whom this book is written to. And the title does a very good job. It's written to the Hebrews. It's written to Hebrew believers. We actually see this, the Messianic Jews, and actually in the opening verse of what we're going to read, we see this a little bit. And then later on in verses 3 through 6, we actually see two parties. And if you've ever heard me teach, there's a lot of times in Scripture where, there's, where the, the preacher's having to hit multiple or the writer's having to hit multiple people in the audience, which isn't that true for us, right? It would be naive of me to think that every single one of you here is a genuine believer, There might be you who are, you're just enough convinced up here that you're seeking, right? You're like, man, there's there's some truth to this stuff, but it hasn't made it here yet, right? There's most likely someone like that in this room. And then there's others who here maybe youth group more because your parents probably dropped you off, right? Like you're kind of forced to be there. No, I don't think parents are dropping you off here. You might be. But, or your friend drug you along because he thought you were going out to dinner and you realized it was just paninis and salad from Publix. It's a cheap date. No, just kidding. Um, we're not the singles ministry, please. 
Um, we are just young adults. But, but we, have, we have believers, we have seekers, and we have those who just really don't know why they're even here. And so he's really hitting this party. He's hitting those of, of those who are believers. They are Messianic Jews. They've, they've, they've understood that Jesus was the Messiah. Then they have those Jews who had the knowledge. They were starting to make the connection from the Old Testament to this, to this Messiah, to this Jesus who now is there and who now is being spoken of. And then you have those who are like some of us who are just inevitably like, I don't know why I'm here. I promise you the first night I went to youth group, it wasn't because I was seeking heavenly things. I was missionary dated, right? It was a girl who was, I thought was cute, and she's like, come with me to church. And then we broke up like a week later, right? Thankfully, God is sovereign, and I stayed, and now I am here, and I have a lovely wife, and we're golden. But with that being said, that's what we have to keep in mind when we read any scripture, when we read any book of the Bible, when we dive into any context, we have to make sure we understand the context of it. And so we have to run through it. So if you're with me in chapter 6, we're going to dive right in. It says, therefore, stop. Therefore, therefore, why therefore? What did we talk about last week? Who was here last week that can remember what we talked about? I'm going to give you a hint. Chapter 5. We're going numerically. Oh, the high priest. The high priest, right? We're talking about Jesus being this high priest. We covered how he laid out the role of the earthly priest and how even the earthly high priest had to still atone for their own sins every time they wanted to enter the holy of holies. Not were they only atoning for the nation. They had to atone for themselves to be able to enter. Yet Jesus only atoning once for sin. Not his own, but for ours, right? He went and he atoned. He had to make no sacrifice for himself. He made a sacrifice on our behalf. The true high priest. And then we see that Melchizedek connection. And Melchizedek is a reference to the Old Testament. He's, he pops up, I think, maybe only once in the Old Testament. And he's spoken of a few times in the New. And he is this kingly priest. Which there was a king in, in Israel's time who tried to do both. And he got a slap on the wrist to say the least. It was a big no-no to mix the two parties, right? Because they couldn't handle that power. They couldn't handle that reality. And yet we see Christ, not only as priest atoned for our sins, but as king can sovereignly dispense them to his people. See, he has to have both roles to be able to do and accomplish what we as humans cannot so therefore, because he is this high priest, because he is from the line of Melchizedek, because he has the authority not only to forgive but to dispense that same forgiveness and that new spirit, we'll go back into the verse. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God teaching about ritual washings, laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. See, this isn't like a leave, leave. This isn't like a, okay, you guys got the ABCs of the gospel, right? John 3, uh, Romans 3.23, Romans 6, 3, or 6.23, and Romans 10, 9, and 10, right? We got those three. We're golden. You saved, right? You said the sinner's prayer. You got your Awana's vest. We're golden, Right Now, leave all of that behind, and now let's talk about predestination. Let's talk about um, you know, eschatology. Let's focus on all of these things. And if anyone wants to bring up the, go the gospel, that's for immaturity. We're mature now. We've got to go on to maturity. See, we're leaving behind what Christ did for us so we can go to the weird, nitty-gritty stuff, right? Wrong. Good answer. That leave in the Greek is actually a launch, right? It's not saying what was foundational is no longer important. It's actually saying now that you've built this firm foundation, now that you grasp what the only thing that can change your heart and soul is, mature in it. Dive deeper into the realities because inevitably what the gospel is to you will affect how you see things like election and predestination, how you see the end times. I think I told you guys a story about the sixth grade girl who walked up to me after we talked about the atonement with our, with our youth, and she goes, so what do you think about the end times? And they're, 
There's no way to a sixth grade girl in the time that I had to go down the paths of every view, what we hold as the church and all this stuff. And so thankfully the Holy Spirit guided me in this answer. And I said, well, I got a very simple thing for you. There's a lot of details in it, but foundationally, if you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's terrifying. If you do have Lord, the, Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it really don't matter at the end of the day, right? Because we're all going to, I've read multiple commentaries on Revelation trying to make sure I had my grasp on it. I've done it. And even the guys that you're like, there's no way he's not right. Five years later, they're like, you know what? Like, there's a shift a little bit. Like, it's, we're still here, but like maybe like, a, like it's, it, there's obviously big no-no's. Like when Pastor Jeff, we came, Jess and I came in uh, to the church just over a year and a half, year and a half, year-ish. Year we came in like right after Christmas, so he was doing all the prophecies, and so we were in the series of Revelation, right? And I'm like, man, what a great way to come in and see how the church is truly going to react to the preaching and teaching. We're in a Revelation series, and he's talking about like the harlot and the beast, and out of nowhere, and there's like the whole row in front of Jess and I is empty, but this one guy. And I know it just sets the stage for a really cool story, but all of a sudden, all he does, and it's like dead silent, right? Because we're, we're attentive, we're, we're listening, and I'm, I'm like taking notes, and all of a sudden, all I hear is, uh, Pastor Jeff says something about, you know, the, the, the harlot, and all of a sudden, a deep sigh, Statue of Liberty. That's it. Statue of Liberty. But in an end times worldview, when people think of like America and these great nations as Babylon, why not take a giant statue of some lady in a scandalous toga, right? And call her the harlot of revelation, I guess. We, I'm sidetracking completely. All right. So we're not leaving. We're not leaving the foundations of scripture. Like I just left the foundation of my message. We're not, we're not doing that. But what we are doing is we're saying, now that I understand the gospel, it affects everything else I believe of Scripture. Right? We read it through the lens of Christ. We read it through the story of redemption. All the things I now learn are because of the gospel. See, they were still trying to do, where it says um, ritual washings, they had to obviously cleanse themselves as they entered the temple. Right, the laying of hands isn't like what we think where you know, Benny Hinn's running around and smacking people on the forehead or whacking them with his vest, right? They actually, their, their animal that they were going to send to the slaughter, they laid the sins of their people, their family, they laid hands on the animal and that was ceremonially them dispensing their sins onto that animal to be sacrificed. And so he's saying, we need to now see that Christ, I've given you the picture, Christ is superior to angels, to prophets. He has the best message. He is all of us. His covenant, the new covenant is the fulfillment of all these things you guys have been given as oral translation, as tradition, and as history. It's all culminating in Christ. And so therefore, stop trying to take the gospel and add stuff to it. Stop trying to take the gospel and still say all these things are okay. It's like I, pro like, I do believe that we have some brothers and sisters that are in the Catholic faith. Well, how can I say that? Because they're, too still, they're still too stuck on the traditions, even though they have their heart truly changed. So they understand the gospel. They've surrendered their life to Jesus. But subconsciously, they might still do the, uh, Christian, the, the, the Catholic calisthenics, right? Where you kneel, you stand up, you lift, you bow down, right? Their service is more action than like a silver sneakers class right? They, they're, they're stuck in these outwardly things because it's so comfortable, but inwardly they have been changed. And so he's talking to the Jewish people, lay aside these things. Lay aside all these rituals and traditions and these, and some of them were good, like the remembrances, right? Passover, different festivals they did. These aren't wrong if you keep them in light of what they are, like we do with communion and baptism, Right? If we watch them in their right stance and partake in them in their right way, they're a reminder of what Christ has now done. We don't hold them to any weird weight. And now here's the heartbeat. Verse 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, 
who tasted the heavenly gifts, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the power of this coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. See, this passage right here taken by itself is a great attempt to speak to those who can fall away. But if we read it in the totality of the book, if we read it in the totality of Scripture, then we grasp what's going on. And actually, I love this because he kind of runs this the same way Jesus runs when he talks about parables. He'll give the parable and then he'll explain it because he's like, y'all dumb, you need this, right? Peter, he have little faith, let me pull you out of the water still, right? Jesus loves to just give it to us plain. And so the, the preacher of Hebrews does the same. So where are we getting at with this? So who, again, he's talking to Hebrews. He's talking to people who had the Israelite background, the oral tradition, all these things. Actually, a lot of this is imagery that they would have caught on to about the wilderness. The wilderness narrative. After they left Egypt. And Moses went up. Was literally gone. It's like, a, it's like a dog with anxiety. Revert that. It's like my cat every time we sleep in past five. He thinks we've abandoned him forever and that the house is going to burn on fire. And then he beats on the door and then I get mad because I wake Jess up because then I get mad and I throw the sheets everywhere and I chase the cat around the house, right? She sleeps through it. I hear the one little, and then you're like, oh my goodness. And the food dish is like 15 feet from where it started. And you're like, you're this angry just because I didn't feed you. Anyways right? It's that anxiety, that abandonment feeling. Israel was like, we thought you were dead. We thought you weren't coming back. So we decided to try and praise our way. and We made a golden cow. And you're like, what? Like we literally, like we walked you through what was going to, like, we told you what was going to happen. And yet you guys just, anxiety took over and they started melting all their jewelry and stuff and made a golden cow. And so these people who were once enlightened, Israel was led by a pillar of cloud and fire. Israel was guided by the presence of God. And I love this because it immediately goes back to the correlation of Pastor Aaron and the Krispy Kreme donuts. This whole passage is really about these types of people. And that's why I love that he made the analogy so simple. But I can tell you everything, the details. He told us about how it came from the same place that cigarettes came from, you know, blessing, dishonor, whatever. But the donut, he said everything, but it's not until you taste the donut that you genuinely experience why everyone is so obsessed with Krispy Kreme and he made me get seven, 14 dozen of them on an eighth grade trip. They're... <laughs> They were enlightened. They got the news. They were once enlightened. They were given the knowledge. They were awakened. Think of the enlightenment period in history about knowledge and all these. It was all up in here. They were enlightened. And he's talking to them. He's saying, you were informed of Christ, right? You were informed of Christ, but you never allowed that to actually change your life. Tasted of heavenly gifts. The manna from heaven and water from the rock. See, not the whole nation of Israel that had these experiences were saved. We read it countless of times that they were those who died in their sin, those who went to death in Hades, those who died in rest with their fathers. There is a distinct correlation, even in the Old Testament. And so it's showing you, it's... it's it's this reality of they literally were enveloped around the miracles and wonders. It's not like Jesus only performed miracles around people who already believed and was like, shh, don't. You can't share this with unsaved people. People witnessed all around the earthly ministry of Christ. The people in the wilderness constantly saw the work of God. Passover, the blood on the doorpost, the firstborn being killed outside of every house that had the blood on it. The plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the engulfing of Egypt's army. 
the bread from heaven. They partook. When someone slapped a rock out of anger and water, right? They still were encouraged and refreshed. But it was all superficial. Shared in the spirit. I'm around people all the time who are getting affected by the Holy Spirit and are guided by the Spirit. You guys who are believers are sealed by the Holy Spirit and you have discernment that's of the Holy Spirit and you make good decisions, hopefully, around your coworkers and fellow students that a lot of times can be to their benefit, is it not? Usually, if you're the one with good discernment in a friend's group, you end up benefiting that group, right? We like the people who make wise decisions. Not that we want to make them, but at least they do. It's still a benefit to us. They've experienced, they've tasted the work of the Spirit. They were at Pentecost. They've seen these things happening. Tasted the words of God and things to come. They witnessed God's faithfulness. and heard. The people in the wilderness heard God. They, they were being led by God until they threw a fit and were like, we want a king. Right? They, they heard the words. These people, they had the, they had the scriptures of everything Jesus said that I came to fulfill. They were able to go and look. Jesus read from the scrolls in the temple. They heard the words. They were being told of what was to come. Fallen away. After all was said and done, they still chose their humanistic tendencies and their comforts over faith in the promise. There were those who said, Lord, well, probably actually Moses, right? Hey, Moses, what? can we just go back? Like, I'm sure if we, for, if we ask for forgiveness from Pharaoh, like, we can go back to just getting whipped all day, and that's way better than this. Right? They, they weren't grasping the beauty of the promise. They were focused on the here and now going, man, this is crap. Can we go back to the less crap over there? They chose the comforts that they knew, the comforts that they wanted that were earthly. And so what happens? That last verse. This is because to their own harm, they were re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. See, every time they pled out in disbelief, they pretty much were telling God what he was already... You know, even though what he had already done was not enough, they needed another sign. Didn't Jesus also deal with this? Then the Pharisees say, well, come on, now it's as easy. Just give us a sign. He goes, the sign of Jonah, right? He said, I'm not a puppet that you can just tell me and I'm going to perform miracles for you because I've already been doing it and you still don't believe. So look to the sign of Jonah, See, when we hear the gospel and choose to ignore it, when we try to solve it any other way, whether it's spiritually or any of these things, what we actually are saying, what we're truly saying when we said, hey, what, Jesus, what you did on the cross was really great, but I'm just not sure if it's enough this time. We might as well put one of those crucifix on the outside of this building and have Jesus hung up on it still. I don't know if that's what they truly mean when they hang those outside of their churches, but that's what I think of every time I see that symbol. Is why is he still up on that cross? That cross should be empty. Me and our our director of communications, I guess you'd call him, Matthew, we were talking about grammar, which I am awful at, as most of you would know by now. And he, was, he just thought it was funny because on Easter, what do we normally say? He is risen. risen, right? He is risen. And this one church he saw decided to put on their photo, little, you know, everyone's photo booth, he has risen. And you're just kind of like, almost like, like and, and so we just got confused, right? We were just like, is it he is risen or he has risen? But at the end of the day, No matter how you want to say it, whatever grammar class that I've probably failed would tell us, we serve a God who is alive. He is not in the grave. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Right? 
He is not there. He has solidified the conquest of sin and death. And when we, for a moment, try to accomplish salvation on our own, if we, for a moment, think that our salvation isn't secure, this might sound drastic, but ultimately, we're doing the same thing they are doing. And I'm not saying that to make it hurtful or bash you, but he said, it is finished. It is secure. He did not go down to hell to suffer. He went down to hell as a victor to bring those at rest home and to solidify those in torment to torment. He said, I was the promised Messiah and I now am here in full glory, in full stance. I have victory the moment I took the cross. That is the weight of what this is. So this passage is not talking about those who genuinely believed and now have fallen away. Rather, we are talking about those who have tasted. Those, man, we talk about this a lot. Like a lot of you went to IRCS, right? A lot of you might went to Keswick or somewhere else or you grew up in a Christian home, right? And, and the, the, the biblical morals were just shoved down your throat and shoved down your face. So you just kind of assumed you were a believer, right? You're like, oh, I'm at church every Sunday, right? I got my Awana vest covered. I started studying the shoulders and everything, right? Like we've, we've been there and we've done it. We've gone to every Bible study imaginable because that's what our friends were doing. They've tasted it. They've experienced it. You might have had godly parents who genuinely were trying to lead you in the gospel message and raise you in a Christian home, and you just were so bogged down because it's all you ever knew that it never truly hit your heart. That is why this ministry exists, because for too long, and I will say this on the church, for too long, especially in scenarios like we have here, we've allowed it almost to be like you were forced to be in kids. You were forced to be at youth. You were forced, forced, forced. Not always out of bad intent, right? Your parents wanted you to learn. But it was that you needed to be there, that once you experience the freedom and choice to be actually, if you even want to be there, you come to realize that it never really took grit. I've seen so many people, because I, I, I unofficially went to Keswick for four years, my best friend was there, so I went with him freshman through, through sophomore year. No, freshman through senior. Wow, messed that up. People actually thought I graduated from Keswick. I did not. Graduated from Seminole High. Go Warhawks. I think that's their team. There you go. <laughs> Alessandra knows. Perfect. <laughs> but this is the truth. Is, is these are people all around us. That's why I can't stand, honestly, that we call us a, a Christian nation. Because if we're a Christian nation and the standards of where our nation's at, that is awful. Politically, morally, spiritually. If you took America's fact sheet and then Christianity's fact sheet, they don't even, they're not even in the same hood. Outside of saying, in God we trust on money, which I think we've already tried to veto. I think they've already taken that off in some states. I don't know. There's angry people trying to take everything away. And here we see the basis for this understanding in 7 and 8. He starts to open it up. He says, For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and produces, produces vegetation useful to those whom it has cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. See, if this language doesn't ring a bell yet, I want this language to, to hearken you back to something. I want it to take you to a parable of Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 8. And I didn't put the verses up there, sorry. I didn't get time to send those, but I'll read them and you guys have your Bibles. Matthew chapter 13. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. 
Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other soil fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground, and it produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what it was sown. See, it landed on the soils, and the birds ate it. In that parable, Jesus goes on to explain that parable about how the seed is the gospel message. The, so, the soil is the heart. And there are people out there, there might be some of you in this room who you hear this gospel message, you hear about Jesus. I don't know why you come, but I'm loving that you do. But the gospel just hits and falls. Then there's that rocky ground where it grows quick and then it withers. I like to say these are those camp, camp highs, right? It's the kid who goes to summer camp and gets saved every year. Right, because in the moment you're you're getting like you're getting it, you're enlightened, and you're like this is awesome, and you and you're in your emotions and and in this like, just like phase of smoke and sweat and stink from camp, you're like yeah Jesus, and then you get home, and all of a sudden that sunlight, that beaming withering Arizona heat hits, or Florida heat, I sweat constantly anyways, but it hits and there's no root system, there's no nourishment, and so it just it falls off. It was never nurtured from head knowledge into heart knowledge. They really liked the thought of it. But as soon as life got hard, they went right back to everything else they'd ever known. Fell on thorny ground. See, the heart filled with religious works and rituals than the gospel. See, there's a lot of gospels preached out there. There's a lot of do this and God will love you. Check off this box and God will forgive you. There's a lot of these things that the gospel message might be given and yet we're so consumed with everything that's bundled around it that's weed and thorn that the message that we perceive is camouflaged and blocked by nonsense and grossness. And so we never actually have a changed heart. See, what he's saying is there's a lot of us in this life. There's a lot of people who we know are like, yeah, we're believers. But then as soon as like Super Bowl happens, they're like, oh, sorry, I got to do chili. I can't be at service, right? Like Jesus is pretty cool, but like this chili is dope, right? Like there's no love and affection for the Lord and Savior who supposedly saved their life. Like they're just like, nah, my Bible's in my house. Or, oh, man. That Jelly Roll song? He's a, he's a country singer. I think he's a country singer. Jelly Roll? That's his name, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I wish I could remember the words for words, and I would never play it in here because it's just awful. Yes. But he's like, I need a Savior. And he talks about, I want to pray to a Savior, but I ain't got a prayer. Right, like he's like, he says, he's literally singing in the song, I know what's wrong with me. I know what can fix it. But I really love living in the wrong. That's our society. That's our culture. These are the people who can tell you the gospel and it never once affected their heart. These are the people where one day, they're going to be like, well, Lord, Lord, we did all this. And he's going to go, depart from me. I never knew you. Because like Pastor Aaron said, information is awesome. Knowledge is so good. But until you encounter, not just experience, right? Because Israel and all these people, all those what they called pagan countries and all the Gentiles, they, everyone experienced experienced the ministry of Christ. Everyone had an experience at some point. We've all had experiences. But a genuine encounter with Christ will never leave anyone the same. That is what he's getting at. That's what he's saying when he, when he talks about this and when he, Jesus even talks about this parable. 
So verse 9. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends. See, he kind of makes that switch again. Even though we are speaking in this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, so not these people, but in your case, we are confident of the things that are better and pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Verse 11, now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy but will be imitators of those who inherit the promise through faith and perseverance. See, he's, he's, he's saying, don't be like these people. Don't be the experience. Be the encounter. Don't be the Hillsong concert where people are getting their throat cancer healed, supposedly. Be the Sunday morning service where there's a faithful preacher giving you the word of God and convicting you. Dearly loved friends, for God is not unjust. So do not cling to these old thoughts. Do not cling to any of these things. Cling to the kingly high priest whose name is Jesus, who is the only one, like chapter, I believe that was chapter four, talks about that promised rest and the one who could take us boldly to the throne of grace in verse 16 of chapter four. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. You don't do that on your own. Jesus carries you to that throne. And for a lot of us, it might be our crippled, fallen apart bodies that he's chucking on there to get us to it because we're so beat up and broken. He says, serve each other. Why? Because we are partakers in the same salvation. We are eternal family. If you are his here tonight, you are my brother and sister, maybe not by blood or relation, but you are by his blood and his relation. That's where I'm stoked that one day, as much as I get to be in heaven with my wife, I get to be there with Martha. I get to be there with Ryan. I get to be rejoicing with everybody who truly is his. And I won't get into the nitty gritty of, oh, do we know our spouse? I well, it's a different conversation. But we're going to serve each other because we love each other. This gives us assurance in the hope that we've placed in Jesus. If we genuinely feel conviction for those around us who are in the family of Jesus, that's assurance that you are his. Because you know if you didn't have Jesus, you wouldn't give them a single moment of your day. But because they're your family in Christ, you'd go to the moon and back. See, we get to act differently because we have assurance in Jesus. Verses 13 and 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. See, just like Abraham, who was counted righteous because of his faith, Right? It was before Abraham did any of these outward signs. He was justified and counted righteous because of his belief, because of his faith in God and the promise. And that promise is sealed, not by us and our standards. It's not sealed and kept by your good works or your faithfulness. Kept by the one who obtained it for us. God. God who swore by himself because there is no one greater. And so we end. For people, in verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for, uh, for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Your hope your assurance, your soul 
has an anchor outside of yourself. Unless you have a different version that says something different where it says, and you went as the forerunner into the inner sanctuary to grab hold of your own salvation, you are good to go. You Indiana Jones did, you swapped it out before the boulder could kill you, you're golden. No, it said Jesus as our forerunner went into the inner sanctuary and now is our anchor. So who holds your salvation? Jesus holds your salvation. Who saved you? If you want to, and we can pull this and you can be completely honest. Who, who in here genuinely thinks you somehow were on the cross and helped pay for your sins? If anything, we're the idiots hammering the nails in. And yet he gave them breath and power to do it. He gave breath and voice to the one, the one thief who mocked him to death. Just as much as he gave breath and, he, and earthly life to the other one. And yet when that one, by grace through faith, said, remember me when you enter your kingdom. What did he say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And if you want a really good sermon on that that's way better than any of mine, Alistair Begg does a phenomenal one on the man on the, middle, on the cross. It's really good. Plugging it unashamedly. See, we are benefactors. The work of salvation has been completed. It is finished. By grace through faith, we get to enter into that promise. See, the moment Christ Jesus makes you born again, you are his. That moment the Holy Spirit probes your heart open and the gospel is presented to you and you fall in surrender and you say, I am yours. I am a sinner in need of a savior. That moment in factual, real history that happened for you, you were changed. You didn't change yourself. You didn't make yourself new. You didn't give yourself new life. Christ did. And if Christ is the one who took the cross, if Christ is the one who said it is finished, if Christ is the one who went into the inner sanctuary to be our anchor for our soul, firm and secure, then you can trust and believe that he will carry you home. You don't have to doubt whether you're going to wake up tomorrow and be a dirty heathen without Jesus. You might act like a heathen, but you'll be a heathen saved by grace. Right? This side of heaven, we're sinners saved by grace. We will screw up. But Jesus holds us forever. So I want to leave you with these points. I know we went a little longer tonight, but I think the scripture deserves it. Point number one, this is where your writing, your writing activity gets to come in when we, take, when we do the points, right? So the first one, when faith seems little or lost, strengthen it by studying the depths of God's word. See, our culture, we have this tendency that we always want to go to the next smarter person, or we want to revert to something that's comfortable when our foundations are shaken, but what did the, the, the preacher of Hebrews tell them? He said, therefore, let us leave into maturity. He's saying, man, you have doubts. You have answers. Test the word. The word will prove to you exactly the truth that you need. Dive into it. We treat this like a, like a weird tool book that can only be used Wednesday nights, Thursday nights, and Sunday mornings. Man, if we could just give it the proper attention that God says, hey, John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among men. Jesus is the embodiment of this book. He is God's word made flesh. So when you seem little or lost in your faith, strengthen it by studying the depths of God's word. Number two, 
Let us lead people to an encounter, to encounter Jesus, not just experience him. See, this is where it's where we tend to go, well, you know, I held the door for that lady, or you know, I went and gave that homeless guy five dollars. But if you never speak the name of Jesus, if you never present the gospel to them, what has that good, the good work will make you feel good. You probably made a difference. And they might have experienced the love that you have for God through that action. But unless we present them with the truth of God, they're never going to encounter it. So let us make sure that in everything we do, we're intentional and we bring people to an encounter with Jesus. This last one's pretty long. I get wordy sometimes. It's fine. Number three, Jesus is your anchor for eternity. When the weight of your sin pulls on us, when the weight of sin pulls on us, know that Jesus won't let go or give way. If you want a shortened version of it, you are secure when you are his. You just want to write that last part, that's fine too. Guys, I know there's things in the Bible that people argue about all day long and we can have discussions about, and some, most of them are healthy and fun. But when it comes down to topics like this, these are the things that are worth fighting for. These are hills I'm worth, that I find worth dying for. Because if Christ died to secure salvation so that one day you will be brought home through his power, I'm willing to die for that truth to be preached in affirmation. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into small groups, and it's going to be a good time. Amen? Amen. Sweet. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this night. God, thank you that no matter how wordy I get, you allow all of them to stay focused and attentive. God, I know a Thursday night such a, honestly, it's a weird night, Lord. It's a very weird night. We saw Friday, all of us still work like eight days a week or go to school for 16 days a week. I don't even know anymore, God. And so we're blessed that Thursdays work. God, I inherited it that way, and I'm thankful you're faithful through it because um, Fridays, Fridays are a day. But God, you are good. And so God, I know that as we enter in a time of small groups that some of these young adults might be feeling the weight of their work and their, their day-to-day lives, but I pray that they can be attentive for just a few minutes longer. God, I pray that they can find refuge and strength in here like as a, as a temporal picture towards that eternal throne room of grace that you boldly allow us to walk into when we are in Christ. God, give us your grace and mercy daily. You promise it when we ask for it. Lord, and we are so thankful we don't have to save ourselves, and we are so thankful that we get to be benefactors and live in the reality that you hold us firm. God, thank you for securing our salvation. We love you. We thank you. We pray this all in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. And like always, I encourage you, if you're not in a table with a bunch of people and you want to go sit with others, sit with them, change it up, sit with different people you might not know. And as always, Jess and I sit up front if you have any questions about anything.